This is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the EM Basic Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking about febrile seizures. These are seizures that most commonly occur in children between the ages of 6 months and 6 years, and they're the most common type of seizure in infants and young children. While febrile seizures usually have a benign course and a good prognosis, they can occasionally persist into febrile status epilepticus, and this is a condition that we must be prepared to treat. In addition, it's important that we rule out life-threatening causes of seizure with fever in all children that present to the emergency department. This episode was written by Dr. Andrea Sarchi under the supervision and direction of Dr. Michael Passafaro, an EM attending as affiliated with the NYIT College of Osteopathic Medicine. As always, this episode does not represent the views of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, the U.S. Air Force, the Shawshank EM Residency Program, or the NYIT College of Osteopathic Medicine. Before we get into the history and patient evaluation, let's talk about the definition of a febrile seizure. A febrile seizure is defined as a convulsion associated with an increased temperature above 38 degrees Celsius in a child between 3 months and 6 years old with the absence of a CNS infection or inflammation that may be causing the fever and seizure, no history of previous afebrile seizures, and no acute systemic metabolic abnormalities that may produce convulsions. To simplify that statement, a febrile seizure is a child between 3 months and 6 years old who has a fever, no history of diagnosed epilepsy, who has had a seizure but does not have any other serious cause for the seizure, like meningitis or electrolyte abnormalities. Febrile seizures are further broken down into two groups, simple and complex. Simple febrile seizures are the most common and account for 75% of all febrile seizures. Simple febrile seizures last for less than 15 minutes, and they don't have any focal features. On the other hand, complex febrile seizures are rare and have episodes that last more than 15 minutes. A febrile seizure is also complex if it is a focal seizure instead of a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. As a reminder, a focal seizure is one that affects only one extremity or one part of the body rather than the total body shaking of a tonic-clonic seizure. If the seizure continues for more than 30 minutes, then this is a condition known as febrile status epilepticus. Now let's discuss what happens when we encounter a child with a chief complaint of febrile seizure. When you enter the room, the child may or may not be actively seizing. If they are actively seizing, then we must take steps to stabilize them with the realization that most of these seizures will resolve spontaneously within two minutes. In the majority of cases, however, seizure activity usually stops before the child is seen in the AD. If this is the case, then the child may be sleepy and confused, or may appear completely normal. When we take the history of a patient for whom we suspect had a febrile seizure, it's important to rule out other causes of seizure and loss of consciousness first. We might be able to obtain some information from the child if they are a little older, but otherwise you'll get most of the history from the parents or the caretaker. First, you want to ask what happened. We need to determine whether the child did in fact have a seizure. You'll want to find out if the child had the uncontrolled rhythmic motor movements typical of a convulsive seizure, whether the child was responsive during the episode, and how long the parents think the episode lasted. Seizures rarely last longer than 90 to 120 seconds. Also find out if the child fell and hit their head when the seizure began, or if they had any other recent head trauma. The next question is whether the patient was behaving abnormally or confused before or immediately after the episode. Finally, ask if the patient experienced any vomiting or urinary or fecal incontinence. These findings are pretty common in children with seizures, 
And for kids who are old enough to be out of diapers, this is an important bit of information to find out. The next thing we need to ask is whether the child has been sick recently. Febrile seizures often occur in patients with viral illnesses, such as influenza, adenovirus, parainfluenza, and HHV6, so we need to ask all the standard review systems questions concerning these viral illnesses. For example, we should find out if the patient has had a cough, runny nose, swollen lymph nodes, or any rashes. Most importantly, has a child had a fever? Remember that, by definition, febrile seizures only occur in the setting of an elevated body temperature. Two conditions that are very important to rule out in a pediatric patient with a seizure are meningitis and encephalitis. Therefore, you should ask the child's caretaker, or the child if they are old enough, if they have had any nausea, vomiting, anorexia, headache, photophobia, or neck stiffness. Next, we'll need to ask about the patient's past medical history. Ask if the patient has ever had any episodes like this before. If so, have they been to a neurologist? If the child has a history of epilepsy, then be sure to ask if they've been complying with their medications or if there have been any changes to dosing regimens. In addition, find out if the child's weight has changed since their last visit to the neurologist. If their weight has increased and they haven't been to the neurologist in a while, then the current dosage of any convulsive medication may not be adequate for preventing seizures. You should also ask the parents or caretaker about the patient's recent immunizations. The risk of febrile seizures is increased after administration of the old-school DTP vaccine that had contained components of the pertussis cell structure, but now we use the acellular version called DTaP that doesn't have an increased risk of febrile seizures. However, there is an increased risk of febrile seizures with the MMRV vaccine that combines MMR and varicella vaccinations. As a result, most pediatricians administer MMR and varicella vaccines separately whenever possible. The final part of the history that we need to ask about is the family history. Genetics probably plays a role in febrile seizures, as the risk of having a febrile seizure is 10 to 20% if a sibling has had a febrile seizure in the past. The risk is as high as 50% if one of the child's parents and a sibling have had febrile seizures. Now let's move on to the physical exam. As with any convulsive seizure, a patient's vital signs may show hypertension, tachycardia, and tachypnea from the sympathetic stimulation. However, these signs usually resolve shortly after the seizures have stopped. If they do extend beyond the immediate postictal period, this could indicate a more serious condition such as hypoxia, a CNS lesion, or exposure to some sort of toxin. In the case of a febrile seizure, Physical exam will usually reveal a neurologically and developmentally healthy child. However, it is important to make sure that the child has no signs of any life-threatening causes of seizure, such as meningitis or encephalitis. A patient with bacterial meningitis may present with fever and signs of meningeal inflammation, including nausea, vomiting, irritability, and nuchal virgidity. You can test the patient for nuchal virgidity by looking for a limited range of motion, inactive flexion, or passive extension of the neck. If there is limitation in either of these movements, this is suggestive meningitis. In older children, i.e. those at least 2 years old, you can test for Kernings and Brzezinski signs. Other signs suggestive of meningitis on physical exam include papilledema from increased intracranial pressure, as well as cranial nerve palsies, so be sure to perform your fundoscopic and cranial nerve exams, especially on older patients that can cooperate with your exam. You should also look for any adverse sequelae of a seizure on exam. This includes head trauma, injury to the tongue or mycosa, 
or any other traumatic injuries. Let's summarize the main points of what we covered thus far. Simple febrile seizures are the most common form of febrile seizures. They have no focal features and last less than 15 minutes, and they do not reoccur within 24 hours of onset. Complex febrile seizures are very rare, may have focal features, and last more than 15 minutes. If the seizure continues for more than 30 minutes, then this is a condition known as febrile status epilepticus. When we take the history of a patient with potential febrile seizures, the first thing to do is determine whether or not the child did in fact have a seizure. Ask the parent or caretaker if the child was responsive during the episode, how long it lasted, if there were uncontrolled rhythmic motor movements during the episode, if there was any fall or recent head trauma, if there were any abnormal behavior before or after the episode, there was any tongue biting or bleeding from the mouth, and if the child experienced any vomiting or urinary or fecal incontinence in older children. We also need to find out if the child has been sick recently. Ask the appropriate questions to see if the patient has an upper respiratory infection, and ask if the patient experienced any symptoms suggestive of meningitis, such as nausea, anorexia, headache, photophobia, or nexedemis. And of course, don't forget to ask if the patient had a fever. Next, find out if the child has had seizures in the past or is on any medication for seizures. If so, ask about the patient's compliance with medications, changes to their dosing regimen, or if they've had any recent weight changes. In addition, find out if the child has had any vaccinations recently, or if there's a family history of febrile seizures, as both can be risk factors for febrile seizures. On physical exam, vitals may show hypertension, tachycardia, and tachypnea during a seizure or in the immediate postictal period. The patient will often be neurologically and developmentally healthy on exam, but it's important to rule out meningitis and encephalitis if you're concerned about them. Test the patient for nuchal rigidity by looking for limited range of motion, inactive flexion, or passive extension of the neck. In older children, you should check them for papilledema if you can get them to stay still long enough. Do a cranial nerve exam and search for any sequelae of seizures such as head trauma, oral or tongue injuries, or any other signs of traumatic injuries. Now let's talk about labs and diagnostic testing. In most patients with simple febrile seizures, diagnostic testing is not necessary or can be very limited. If the patient is stable, not actively seizing, and has a history and physical exam that are unremarkable for something other than a febrile seizure, then nothing further is needed. On the other hand, if the patient has a history or physical exam that may suggest meningitis or encephalitis, meets the criteria for febrile status epilepticus, or the child just looks toxic, they need to do an LP in the full workup. Beyond that obviously sick child, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends lumbar puncture if the patient is between 6 months and 12 months old and they haven't been immunized against H-flu type B or strep pneumo. Just to clear up some confusion on the guidelines, the AAP used to recommend that LPs be done on every child younger than 12 months with a febrile seizure and to strongly consider an LP between 12 and 18 months. However, this guideline has been revised for the better to only include LP routinely on those children who aren't fully immunized. Other times to consider lumbar puncture are when febrile seizures occur after the second day of illness or in children who are already on antibiotics because the antibiotics may mask signs or symptoms of meningitis, but this can be based on your clinical assessment. If you make the decision to do an LP, a blood culture, CBC, and electrolytes should be obtained at the same time. The decision to undertake any sort of workup for simple febrile seizures needs to be based on the child's age, immunization status, and their overall exam and appearance. 
Way back in the early days of the podcast, I did an episode on febrile infants. So if you have a few minutes, it may be worth it to review that episode. Let's do a really quick overview. First, if you have an infant under 28 days old with a fever, or any child that looks toxic, then it's full court press, no questions asked. Labs, cath urine, chest x-ray, blood cultures, LP, antibiotics, and admit. For patients between one month old and two months old with fever, you will want to get all the labs, but you may be able to avoid the LP if they meet certain criteria, such as the Rochester or Philadelphia criteria. In the episode on febrile infants, I advocated LPs on all children up to two months old. Some agree with this broad approach, but others think that it's too aggressive. This is a place where institutional guidelines can really help you out. Once a child has received their first round of vaccines at two months old, you can probably avoid an LP. At three months old, the child is pretty well out of the woods as far as a cold bacteremia, and you can let your history and physical be your guide. However, make sure to remember those children who are at higher risk for UTI. Those kids are circumcised males under six months old, uncircumcised males under 12 months old, and females under 24 months old. This makes sense because circumcised males are at the lowest risk for UTI, while girls are at the highest risk for UTI, with uncircumcised males falling somewhere in the middle. Just remember the numbers 6, 12, and 24, or start at 6 months and double it for each level of risk. Standard tests such as CBC, BMP, and calcium level are low yield in patients with simple febrile seizures. Therefore, these tests should only be ordered in patients with additional findings such as vomiting, diarrhea, dehydration, edema, abnormal fluid intake, and in those patients who are getting an LP done. In addition, if the patient is actively seizing the ED and it lasts for more than two minutes, then you should obtain a stat serum glucose level because all actively seizing patients are hypoglycemic until proven otherwise. When it comes to imaging, CT and MRI are usually not required for simple febrile seizures. However, in the setting of a complex febrile seizure, trauma, or when the neurological exam is persistently abnormal, obtain a non-contrast head CT. Basically, if you're doing an LP for a complex febrile seizure, then these patients need either a head CT or an emergent MRI coordinating with the inpatient team. Since all children with complex febrile seizures will be admitted, an MRI may be the best choice if you don't suspect acute trauma. So talk with your inpatient team and you may be able to save the child a dose of ionizing radiation to their brain if you can coordinate an MRI in a timely fashion. If the child appears well and has a normal exam, then most first-time simple febrile seizures don't need imaging. At the very worst, they are best evaluated with an outpatient MRI. However, an MRI is usually not needed after the first simple febrile seizure. This is a decision that can be left up to the child's primary care doctor. An MRI will save the radiation from CT, and it will also provide better anatomic detail of the brain. An electroencephalogram, or EEG, is not indicated, as many studies have shown that most children with simple febrile seizures have a normal EEG. Let's talk now about the differential diagnosis of febrile seizures. As we mentioned earlier, the main concern in a patient with seizures and a fever are meningitis and encephalitis. If the history of physical exam is suggestive of that, then the initial test or order would be a CBC with differential, BMP, two sets of blood cultures, and a lumbar puncture if there are no contraindications. You also want to give the child antibiotics right away as soon as possible. You will have several hours to obtain the LP before the antibiotics affect the results, so don't let that be a big concern 
and don't delay your antibiotics. Use an age-appropriate antibiotic regimen. Children younger than one month old should get ampicillin and cefotaxime. The doses for both ampicillin and cefotaxime are 50 mg per kilogram. Patients from one month of age all the way up to adults should get ceftriaxone at 50 to 100 mg per kilogram and vancomycin at 15 to 20 mg per kilogram. Your institution may have their own guidelines for antibiotics in pediatric meningitis, and you should follow those since they will take into account your local antibiotic resistance patterns and your institution's comfort with certain medications. The most common condition that can be mistaken for seizures is syncope. Syncope in young children can have many provoking factors, including breath-holding spells, vasovagal events, and cataplexy, amongst others. Unlike seizures, syncope is not associated with tongue biting, rhythmic motor movements, incontinence, or postictal state. If you suspect syncope in a child, then a good history and physical, as well as an EKG, will usually rule out any life-threatening causes. Another condition that can be confused with febrile seizures is shaking chills. Chills are common in young children and are described as rhythmic oscillatory movements around a joint. Unlike febrile seizures, shaking chills rarely involve facial or respiratory muscles and are not associated with a loss of consciousness. Another possible, though rare, cause of seizure in a febrile child is an underlying metabolic disorder. These patients will usually have a history of vomiting, diarrhea, or altered fluid intake, any of which can lead to an electrolyte abnormality such as hyponatremia that can then lead to a seizure. Before we talk about management and disposition, let's summarize the tests to order and differential diagnosis of febrile seizures. In most patients with simple febrile seizures who are not actively seizing, diagnostic testing is not necessary or very limited if they are well-appearing, fully vaccinated, and have a history consistent with a recent viral illness. If the patient exhibits signs or symptoms of meningitis or encephalitis, they need to give antibiotics and do an LP ASAP. An LP is also required if the child is experiencing febrile status epilepticus once you get the seizures under control. The AAP recommends doing an LP if the patient is between 6 and 12 months and their immunization status for H. flu type B or strep pneumo is deficient. The AAP also recommends considering an LP if the patient is currently on antibiotic treatment because antibiotics can mask the signs and symptoms of meningitis. You can also consider an LP if the seizures occur after the second day of illness. If you make the decision to do an LP, you should also obtain a CBC, electrolytes, and blood cultures. However, keep in mind that standard tests such as CBC, electrolytes, and calcium levels are low yield in patients with simple febrile seizures who you aren't going to do an LP on. You should obtain a finger stick blood glucose level if the patient is actively seizing in front of you. When it comes to imaging, CT or MRI should only be obtained in the setting of trauma or when the neurological exam is persistently abnormal. An EEG is not indicated in children with simple febrile seizures. As far as other things on a differential besides meningitis and encephalitis, shaking chills can be differentiated from febrile seizures and that shaking chills rarely involve facial or respiratory muscles and are not associated with a loss of consciousness. Underlying metabolic disorders are a rare cause of seizures in a febrile child and is usually only present in the setting of vomiting, diarrhea, or altered fluid intake. Now let's discuss how to manage a patient with febrile seizures. If the child is actively seizing, then be sure to immediately address their airway, breathing, and circulation status. You can protect the child's airway by placing them on their side. For the patient's breathing, administer oxygen via nasal cannula 
if the patient's O2 sat is below 90% or if they appear cyanotic. If the child looks well and has had normal vital signs before they seized, during these first two minutes of the seizure, you don't have to be super aggressive by immediately starting to get IV access right away, but make sure to protect the airway and get your equipment ready in case you have to intervene. If the seizure lasts for more than two minutes, you should obtain a finger stick glucose and attempt to establish IV access. This IV will help if you decide to draw labs or in the event that seizure medication is necessary. If IV access can't be established within five minutes and the patient is still seizing, then start an IO line so that you can give medications through it. If the blood sugar is low or you can't obtain a finger stick glucose for some reason and the child is still seizing, then empirically give IV or IO glucose. For infants, give D10 at 5 to 10 cc's per kilogram. For older children, give D25 at 2 to 4 cc's per kilogram. You can remember these by dividing 50 or 100 by the glucose concentration. For example, for D10, 50 divided by 10 is 5 cc's per kilogram, and 100 divided by 10 is 10 cc's per kilogram, thus giving you the range of 5 to 10 cc's per kilogram. The other way to think about this is to take the glucose concentration and multiply it to get 50 or 100, and that will give you the cc's per kilogram. This sounds confusing over podcast, but it isn't. Check out embase.org to see the written summary. Normally, a febrile seizure is self-limited, and we do not treat the patient with any convulsants. However, the longer a seizure continues, the lower the chance it will stop without treatment. Therefore, the general guideline is to treat febrile seizures if they persist for more than 5 minutes. The initial treatment is Ativan, or lorazepam, at 0.05 to 0.1 mg per kilogram, with a maximum dose of 4 mg. If the seizure continues, you can give an additional dose. Since benzodiazepines can suppress the patient's breathing, be sure to monitor the patient's respiratory status and always be prepared to intubate if necessary. If the seizure persists after two doses of Ativan, then you should give the child phosphonatoin at 15 to 20 mg per kilogram IV to a maximum dose of 1,000 mg. If you don't have IV access, then you can give rectal diazepam at a dose of 0.5 mg per kilogram to a maximum dose of 20 mg. If you don't have IV access, you can also give lorazepam at the same dose IM as you would IV. It's important to note that febrile seizures rarely persist after initial treatment, and if they do, they usually occur in febrile seizures that are complex and with focal features, which are extremely rare. Remember that if the patient is not actively seizing, then no treatment is necessary. For any cases of pediatric status epilepticus, you'll want to get your peds neurologist involved early for advice and to arrange for an emergent EEG. Keep in mind that patients with seizures usually die from hypoxia, so be very aggressive with preoxygenation and managing the airway with RSI if needed. It is much better to take the airway early and have the patient get extubated after a short period of observation than to have them die or end up neurologically devastated from hypoxia. Finally, don't forget about metabolic causes for seizures such as hyponatremia, especially in young infants. One cause of this is over-dilution of formula with water. This is where a stat chemistry panel may be important. If hyponatremia is the cause for a persistent seizure, then you can give 3% hypertonic saline. 3% hypertonic saline is dosed at 3 cc's per kilogram, so that's easy to remember. In the ED, you will want to give boluses until the seizures stop. Once the seizures stop, then you have some time to obtain central access and properly calculate a drip rate for the hypertonic saline. 
Figuring this out is something that is best left to a pediatric critical care doctor, but you may have to get it started if the patient requires transfer to another facility. Before we wrap up this episode, let's talk about how to talk with parents and caregivers about simple febrile seizures. Any kind of seizure is going to be really scary for a parent, and it's our job in the emergency department to rule out badness and then to provide reassurance. Parents are understandably freaked out that their child shook violently in front of them, so try to put yourself in their shoes. Make sure you don't blow this off as just a run-of-the-mill febrile seizure that you can get out of the department quickly. This is one case where a little bit of education and reassurance can go a long way. Unfortunately, my parents had to deal with this because I had several febrile seizures as a child, as did my brother. They will tell you that it scared the living crap out of them. During one episode, I went blue and limp for what was probably a few seconds, but for them it seemed like an eternity. I had several more febrile seizures, and I was even put on phenobarbital for a while, because back in the early 80s, kids with recurrent febrile seizures were routinely put on antiepileptics. When I had my last febrile seizure at the age of 6, almost 7, according to my pediatrician, I was one seizure away from being diagnosed with epilepsy. However, that was my last one. I haven't had an issue since. The point of me sharing this is that febrile seizures are a common thing, and they can lead to lots of worry, but it doesn't have to be that way if you educate the parents and provide reassurance. Whenever I have a child with febrile seizures in the ED, I always tell the parents about my parents' experience with my febrile seizures and tell them that I turned out okay. Well, at least I think I turned out okay. If you or a family member had a similar experience and you feel comfortable sharing this with parents, then it can go a long way to reassure them. However, don't ever lie and make up a story just to make the parents feel better. They will see right through you, and you'll lose all credibility in their eyes. So enough about me. Let's talk about the nitty-gritty of febrile seizure education for parents. First, reassure them that simple febrile seizures are common, and they aren't a sign that their child is seriously ill. You can also tell them that a single simple febrile seizure does not put their child at a higher risk of epilepsy later in life. Children with febrile seizures are only at higher risk of epilepsy if they have developmental delays that presented themselves before the febrile seizures. Tell the child's parents that a febrile seizure isn't a sign that their child's brain is being damaged. It's not about how high the fever goes, but how quickly the temperature rises. Parents will think that their child's brain is boiling inside of their head. You need to reassure them that this is not the case. Tell them that it's a reaction to a fever that peaks quickly, and there isn't anything they can do to prevent it. It is a well-known fact that antipyretics, such as acetaminophen or ibuprofen, do nothing to prevent febrile seizures even when given prophylactically. This is important to tell parents, because if you don't, then the child's parents will be checking their kid's temperature every five minutes once they get home and unnecessarily loading them with antipyretics the second their temperature gets above 98.6 Fahrenheit, aka 37 degrees Celsius. This is being a little overly dramatic, but you will hear of parents rushing to get home to give their child antipyretics when their child barely has a fever, thinking that this will help prevent a febrile seizure. This is totally false, and you need to reassure parents that there is nothing they could have done to prevent the febrile seizure, or else they would be paranoid for the next seizure, which, by all odds, will never come for most kids. Be patient and acknowledge that what they witnessed was very scary. Make sure to tell them that they didn't do anything wrong and that their child would be just fine. Before we wrap this episode up, let's review management and disposition of a patient with febrile seizures. If the patient is actively seizing, then immediately address the patient's ABCs, by turning the patient on their side to protect their airway and administering oxygen via nasal cannula or face mask. In general, 
IV access can be delayed until the two-minute mark, since most of these seizures will resolve on their own without intervention. If the serum glucose is low, or you can't get a measurement, and the child is still seizing, then give the child 2 to 4 cc's per kilogram of D25, or 5 to 10 cc's per kilogram of D10 for infants. You should treat a patient with febrile seizures with anticonvulsants if the patient's seizure persists for more than 5 minutes. Start by giving Ativan, aka lorazepam, IV, at 0.05 to 0.1 mg per kilogram to a maximum dose of 4 mg. If the seizure continues after 2 doses of Ativan, then give the child Fosfonitoin at 15 to 20 mg per kilogram IV to a maximum dose of 1,000 mg. Rectal diazepam gel at 0.5 mg per kilogram is also an option if you can't get IV access. Be aggressive with preoxygenation and airway management as kids with seizures die from hypoxia, and the medications we give them are likely to cause respiratory depression. If you give any anti-epileptics, then be prepared to immediately perform RSI. As for the disposition, the child with a first-time simple febrile seizure can be discharged home with referral to their PCP if they have had a normal neurologic exam and do not require any epileptic medications in the ED. However, if the patient had a complex febrile seizure or persistent seizures requiring the use of anti-epileptics, or the patient has a history of seizures, then they should be admitted for further treatment and workup. For kids that have had a simple febrile seizure whom you will be discharging, make sure to reassure the parents that their child will be just fine. Simple febrile seizures don't cause brain damage, they can't be prevented by prophylactic antipyretics, and they don't mean that the child will have a higher risk of epilepsy later in life unless they already have developmental delays. That's it for this episode on febrile seizures. As you can see, the treatment for children with febrile seizures is usually simple and straightforward, and fortunately for the children, the prognosis is excellent. Just be on the lookout for badness like meningitis, sepsis, and non-accidental trauma, and provide reassurance when necessary. Before we go, I want to mention a new blog and podcast that came out recently that will benefit any medical students who are rotating in EM or considering EM as a specialty. The podcast is called EM Stud, and it's run by the VCU Department of Emergency Medicine. Their focus is on the nuts and bolts of how to be a great medical student in EM, with topics including how to ace the EM interview and how to present patients in the ED. You can find the podcast on iTunes or go to emstud.com. I'll have a link in the show notes at embase.org. That'll wrap it up for this episode. Thanks again to Dr. Andrea Sarchi for the script for today's podcast. As usual, if you have any questions or comments about the podcast, you can email me at steve at embase.org. Till next time, this is Steve Carroll for the Embase Podcast, signing off.